invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, very familiar passage that we have considered many times. I suspect I considered this passage back in March as uh, the COVID-19 circumstances began. Uh, I, I wanted to reflect this morning from the scripture uh, in light of the conclusion of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 uh, with you. It has been, uh, there have been no shortage of conversation uh, no matter what newscast uh, you follow, no matter what news source you follow, even uh, culturally, uh, no matter what football team you follow, <laughs> there has been an awful lot of out with 2020 and let's hurry on to 2021 conversation. And whereas I uh, am not sitting in judgment on that, I am keen to encourage you to take a more theological viewpoint to the manner in which you look at the affairs of man. I think it's important for the people of God to think like the people of God and not to get sucked into the vortex of thinking like the world. So I want very much to illustrate in the Scripture how for all of the difficulties that we've enjoyed in the past year, there has been a purpose. And we must not miss that purpose. We must not. Let me say from the outset, this is the first Sunday that I've been back since I was diagnosed with COVID-19. You could have knocked me over with a feather when I got that diagnosis, by the way. I was sitting in the parking lot of one of these care facilities, and I was convinced that I just had a sinus infection because I know exactly what a sinus infection feels like. I've only had about 7 million of those in my life. So I told the girl on the phone, I said, look, I know I don't have the virus, so I'm really here to get a Decadron shot. And then she called me and said, well, there's no Decadron shot for you today. You have COVID-19. Well, that was a bummer because now we had to quarantine. And I'm telling you, as God would have it, our case of COVID was, was mild. Others cannot say that, but I, I can say that. Our case was mild. But our case of quarantine was miserable. I mean, that quarantine thing is bad. And I found myself complaining because I wanted to I had it planned out, and uh, that quarantine thing ruined everything. And on top of that, the Internet went spotty on me, and that really made me mad. 
So I'm speaking today as a man who has walked a bit of a grumbling road in the last two weeks. So I speak to my own heart as well as to yours as we reflect today. So I want to read the perhaps most famous passage on suffering in the New Testament that doesn't involve the Lord Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 1. I must go on boasting, the apostle says, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast... I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. That is not an unusual passage for anybody in this room. We have thought of it often and talked about it often, and we do so again. I just want to mention three things quickly and move to the Old Testament to illustrate. Number one, the Lord intends human weakness. The Lord intends human weakness. I want you to see this in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. God intends human weakness. I want to say from the outset, what appears to be human weakness is. What appears to be human weakness is. It is weakness. There is no person or group of persons or church of persons that do not have weaknesses. The notion that somehow there is this uh, utopian group, there's a utopian person, there's a utopian family, there's a utopian group of families, there's a utopian church that they've got it all buttoned down and they just don't have any weaknesses. Uh, that, that's just, it's just ridiculous. It's not biblical. It's not righteous. It's not productive. Perfectionism is alive and well and it will eat you up. 
The notion that somehow that we're a bunch of perfect people and that we are better than other people because we perform better or whatever, these things are completely ridiculous and they are not based in fact. What appears to be human weakness is. But what appears to be human weakness that prohibits the kingdom of God is not. What appears to be human weakness that prohibits the kingdom of God is not. Learn this, believe this, cling to this. Our hope is not in the affairs of men. It's not in the structures of men. It's not in the organizational wit of men. It's not in the cleverness of men. It's not in the strategies or tactics of men. Think of 2020. I mean, there's not a thing that we did in this church, and I would say virtually nothing that you did in your entire family that was planned. And yet here you are. You got through. If we could say we're through. The Lord prospered. The Lord cared for us. The Lord shepherded us. And, and why? Because there's something going on here that's bigger than us, that's stronger than us, that's more powerful than us. The very weakness of man is the plan. We just celebrated Christmas. Jesus comes and he is born a baby. Is there anyone weaker than a baby? There's anyone less to offer than a baby. The king, Herod, decides he should die, sends out on all points, and every child under the age of two is going to die. How does Jesus slip out through the dragnet of King Herod? How does Jesus get to Egypt? He does so because the strength of God is greater than the weakness of man. Joseph doesn't have some grand strategy. Mary certainly doesn't have any grand strategy. Hey, we're just winging it. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have any experience. There's no textbook on how to get this done. We just listen to angels. They tell us where to go and how long to stay there. And they do. And they obey. And God does something profound. He says that his power is perfected in weakness. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the, the, the word perfect comes from the same root as the word finished. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Same root word here. It is perfected. It is perfected, finished, completed. The, the, the evidence here is that God intends for us to surrender our strength unto him and to surrender our weakness unto him so that he might perfect his grace in us, that we might come to the end of ourselves and say, glory to God, hope in God, trust in God. Our strength comes from God. The apostle makes much of this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. 
where he says to his hearers there, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not the strength of man or the cunning of man or the cleverness of man that God intends. There's a second thing that we see, and that is the Lord intends human weakness because of the pride of man. The pride of man. Again, go back to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited. The Apostle Paul had gone up into heaven, what we usually mean when we say heaven. The Bible here references the third heaven. The first heaven is the is the air that we breathe. It's where the birds fly. The second heaven is what today we would call outer space. And the third heaven is where God dwells. Paul said, the Lord took me to third heaven, to the third heaven. And because I saw things that no man is permitted to see, no man is permitted to talk about, he gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from conceitedness. To keep me from thinking more highly of myself than I ought to be. The pride of man is a real threat. You know, God has a long history of rebuking the pride of man. I uh, think immediately of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 is the passage for the Tower of Babel. Just a couple of things. Chapter 11 reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower where the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Why did God confuse languages? Why is there a language called English and Spanish and Russian? and Swahili, and Portuguese, and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of other languages. Why? Because man is proud. 
And man proves that he is proud by determining that he will build a city that is so grand and so worldly that not even God is necessary. I don't know what you think about 2020, but if there's ever been a year in my lifetime when the arrogance of man was on full display, I can't remember it. I don't profess to know, and I don't think anybody else does either, so stop buying their books, why God brought a pandemic upon us. But I know that every other time, and you read in the Bible, that God brings pestilence or God brings sorrow or God brings judgment. Every single time he does that because of the arrogance of man or the sin of man and those are usually both sides of the same coin. Do we live in a proud world? I don't know what you think, but I do. I think we live in a pretty godless, arrogant, self-reliant world. We have little interest in the things of God and little need for the God of God's. Culturally, we have abandoned the notion that somehow the faith of people matters and that holiness and righteousness and justice should prevail. Instead, we become far less than that, far less than that. Why did God give Paul a thorn? Because he was a threat to become conceited, just like every other man. It turns out the Apostle Paul is not better than you or me or anybody else we could name. He is but a man, and he is a threat to become conceited. And the pride of man is an enemy of God. And God is on a mission to stamp it out to kill it dead, and to show us that, in fact, this does not bring honor to God. Consider another familiar story. Judges chapter 7 is the story of Gideon. You'll remember that Gideon is a military man, and he's going to go to battle. Verse 1 of Judges chapter 7 now Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the, wind, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you see? God said, I'm going to reduce the size of your army from tens of thousands down to 300. Then you're going to attack, but you're not even going to fire a shot. You're going to break pots, scream, shout, not even fire a shot. 
And I'm going to do this so that you don't come back and say, boy, we really took it to them, didn't we? No. If you're going to battle with a pot, you're a loser. But they were winners because God made them winners. And God is at work doing this kind of thing again and again and again and again and again. We must look to God and hope in God and trust in God and cling to God and recognize that God hates our arrogance. He hates it. He doesn't just dislike it. He hates it, friends. And our arrogance manifests itself in every kind of possible way. I can't conclude without reminding you of this story. Maybe you remember the story of Jonah, so-called reluctant prophet. Jonah chapter 4 is the record of Jonah going to uh, the ancient city of Nineveh and proclaiming uh, forgiveness uh, from God, by God, proclaiming, as it were, gospel mercy. And so he does so. And then Jonah becomes angry because Jonah is a prejudiced man. Jonah has a, 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 a vendetta against the, the Ninevites. And he, he can't stand them. He hates them. He has run already. This is the reason he goes off to Tarshish, which is in the other direction. Nineveh's that way, and Tarshish is that way. And I'm, I'm running from God. And God, of course, captures him with the fish and uh, spits him out and sends him on, and he preaches, and there's a great turning and a great revival. And then the fourth chapter of Jonah is Jonah whining about what God did in saving the Ninevites. So just read with me a paragraph, verse 1. But it pleased Jonah, rather, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, what is it? It is the, the repentance of God of the Ninevites, the forgiveness of God. Uh, God allows their repentance. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please kill me. Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You know what I would have said? I would have said, What is your problem? But God already knew his problem. Why are you angry? So Jonah, verse 5, went out of the city. You have a theme here, by the way. Jonah repeatedly thinks that he can run from God. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself, I think a lean-to, made a tent. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Listen, you know, if if God appoints a worm to kill a single plant, I figure he's in charge of viruses. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so they withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Hmm. You know, the Lord reminded me of this last week, and I'm sitting there whining about bad Internet. Jonah was a whiner. Jonah was a complainer. He was a complainer about a plant that he didn't plant that came up in the middle of the night. He had no jurisdiction, no power over it. It just showed up. And he got used to having a little shade, and then God appointed a worm to kill it. And Jonah said, I think I just need to die. I mean, isn't that a bit of an overreach? I'm sitting in the sun. I think I should die. I hate the Ninevites. I think I should die. What Jonah's really saying is he hates the mercy of God. He hates the fact that God is God and he's not. He hates not being in charge. He hates not calling the shots. He hates not being the one who gets to decide who's in and who's out. This is the nature of man. Our arrogance and our conceit constantly suggest we are wise, we are smart, we are competent, we are capable, we are perfect. Friend, you are not. And beware the notion that you are. Because your weakness is on full display. And God has a thousand bullets in his gun to make sure that you know that you are weak. And our hope is not in our strength. Our hope is not in our intellect or our cleverness or our strategies or our tactics. Our hope is in our God. And the sooner we get used to that, the better it's going to go for us. The better it's going to go for our nation the better it's going to go for this world. That's why we're missionary people. We celebrate God. He makes sense of all the nonsense. He's our hope, the ever-present help in time of trouble. The pride of man is a terrible thing. He hates it, hates it. And then lastly, I'll simply say, 
The Lord's agenda is always bigger than you or me. You know, I just think about this often. In America, we have this temptation to think that somehow we're the cat's meow. You know, the, the rest of the world owes us a reason for, uh, for their being. Well, I, you know, I'm as patriotic and nationalistic as anybody. I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but I will tell you something, friend. Nobody owes us a thing. Not ultimately. But every nation in this planet owes God everything, including this one. We owe God everything. And our hope is in God and must be in God. And God's agenda is about far more than just us. I couldn't help but remember, think of it as Drew was talking about Becky. Becky DeWitt. Becky, I know you're watching, so. Becky and her roommate Nadia have had COVID. And it's very difficult for them. Uh, medical care in Kiev is different than medical care here, and uh, their circumstances are different, and so, so they've had a much tougher go of it. Uh, but praise God, they're, they've, they've come through the worst of it and, and uh, looking forward to the future. But, but the, the country has reacted in a certain way. Government regulations are different there and so forth. And uh, it's, it's been very difficult. And Becky has this new job as this principal, and, and uh, she's, she's taken on this task of trying to manage all of this. And those of you who are in administration and education know the, the challenge that that's been during COVID and continues to be, and it's not going away anytime soon. And so Becky is contending with all of that, and, and I reflect on that just here this morning. Just the fact that if, if you think if you think the world or, or that everybody is having the same experience you're having, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. They're not. They're not having those experiences within our borders, and they're certainly not having the same experiences outside of our borders. My point is, is that God is doing things that are so complex so, so magnificent, so glorious. The, the, the variables, the number of variables, the mathematicians here could, could, could tell us how magnanimous these, these calculations would have to be. God is actually running the world. In spite of the fact that no two countries are the same, no languages are the same, no cultures are the same, governments are the same, access to health care is the same, nothing is the same, and yet God is still running it all. And somehow we have a tendency like Jonah to say, well, it's really all about me. And God shouldn't care about hundreds of thousands of Ninevites. He should care about me. And God shouldn't care about hundreds of thousands of Ninevites. He should care about my plant. God shouldn't care about hundreds of thousands of Ninevites. He should care about that worm. And God said, do you have a right to be angry? No, friend. Turns out you don't. Because God sends worms 
wherever he wants to send worms. And God sends thorns wherever he wants to send thorns. And God sends pandemics wherever he wants to send pandemics. And there ought to be no person in this room who doesn't believe that. We are the people of God. We see the world differently. We think differently. We understand differently. We react differently. We hope differently. We respond differently. And there is a foundation of joy, a foundation of confidence. There is a foundation of hope that characterize or should characterize our lives even if no other person agrees with us. We are the people of Almighty God, and we must respond to the affairs of man knowing that God is doing something profound. I urge you, as we look forward to the new year, don't fall into the trap of suggesting that somehow last year was such a waste or was such a dumpster fire or was such a bad experience. Do any of us hope that it continues? No. On the contrary, we hope it doesn't. But we hope in God for the remedy. What, do not waste, do not forfeit what God has done. God has brought us to our collective knees and said, do you have a right to be angry? <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have a right to be angry. I read an article this week. I close with this. I read an article this week. It said that we're experiencing historical levels of tragedy. And the writer of the article took issue with that hyperbole. His, his reaction was, no, it's, it's not historical levels of tragedy. Not for this country. They did have a little thing called the Civil War. That would be historical levels of tragedy. We've, you know, never had this, never had that. Well, I, I will tell you something, friends. We, we've had difficulty, certainly difficulty, and we've had more political acrimony than any of us can remember. But I will tell you, most of us have not experienced depression-level financial strain. In fact, virtually none of us have. Virtually none of us in this room have, have, have had our finances compromised. Some have, but virtually none. We have sought to 
mitigate those circumstances everywhere we find them, and we will continue to do that. But the reality is they've been hard to find. Praise God. But there have been hard financial times. So if this is historical, it's not much history. There have been loss of life. There's been loss of possessions. There's been loss of health. There's been loss and loss and loss. And let us not minimize any of those things. But friends, understand this. It's been worse. God is speaking, but he is only whispering still. If you want to see him yell, brothers, be careful what you wish for. Israel is deported into exile. Now that is a scream. So don't waste the whisper. God has been speaking to us. I want you to love me. I want you to turn to me. I want you to look to me. I want you to depend upon me. I want you to quit ignoring me. I want you to quit being conceited. I want you to quit complaining about the loss of a plant that you didn't have anything to do with. I want you to love what I love, to love who I love, and to give your attention to me and serving me. Let us not waste this year. 2020 has been profoundly challenging. And yet, here we are, the beginning of 21. Let us go forward, learning, applying, changing, and looking to God and hoping in him. Pray together with me now. God, I thank you for your care for us through the past year and ask for your grace as we look forward to the new. We pray, Father, that our lives would not mistake what you're doing, that we would not get so caught up in our own little orbit, our own little world, even as Jonah, that we would care more for ourselves and for our sunburn than we would care for the eternal destinies of hundreds of thousands of people. God, please give us grace to see what you see, to feel what you feel, to know what you know to love what you love. Give us grace. Make much of Jesus in our lives. For we offer this prayer in his name. Amen.